This is exactly right. You can live um, without food longer than you can live without sleep. It, it really is one of those absolutely it's essential elements of life. And yet too often it does get sort of um, pushed aside or people think, oh, well, I can get by on less sleep. You know, one of the sleep researchers I spoke with, he has this great analogy. He's like, well, you wouldn't starve yourself during the week and then say, oh, well, I'm going to be able to, to make it all up on the weekends, you know, which is sort of the, the, um, the way some people often approach sleep. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Sleep Deprived Teen with Lisa Lewis. Lisa is the author of The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive, described as a call to action by Ariana Huffington and an urgent and timely read by Daniel Pink. The book is an outgrowth of her previous work on the topic, including her role helping get California's landmark law on healthy school start times passed. Lisa has written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, and many, many others, and has appeared on The Today Show, BBC Weekend, and local radio and TV in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and elsewhere. She's a parent to a teen and a recent teen who inspire much of what she writes, and they all live in Southern California. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So glad to be here. So before we dive into the topic at hand, was journalism always your calling or did it slowly unfold over time? A little bit of both, actually. So I would say writing has always been my calling. Even as a child, um, I tended to write everything from, you know, gosh, I'm trying to remember that. I remember a lot of bad poetry, actually, (laughs) around fourth grade. Um, But I always knew, I think, that I trended that way, wanting to do something that had to do with writing. And so my entire career has been writing related. It was not all journalism related. Um, I started out in the corporate world. I did corporate communications for many, many years. And I um, also then went back and got an MFA, uh, Master's Mm -hmm. of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, and had um, been working on some more creative projects. And then at some point did segue into um, parenting journalism. So as as a freelance journalist, I ended up covering topics that were sort of close to home, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what ultimately um, evolved into what I do now, which has been much more solidly in the journalism realm. Um, Parenting, really sort of uh, writing about topics at the intersection of parenting, public health, and education. 
And that in turn led to my involvement in our um, new law here in California for school start times. And then that in turn led to my new book. And I can get into more about that, but that is sort of the 30 second overview of, of my entire mm-hmm. professional history. <laughs> so always a writer, a, uh, a former poet in uh, elementary school, um, <laughs> a, a creative writer. How, um, how do you describe the process for you between creative writing um, and journalism, I mean, is it you know is it complete? Is it very different for you, or do you rely on the same the same skills and process? Yeah, that's a great question. I I feel like for me, it really is two separate types of writing, sort of that whole right brain left brain thing. Um, mm-hmm. Creative writing, obviously, you have to summon up creativity, and and that's a harder state to to be in sometimes you can't just turn that on. Um, So in some ways for me, that feels a lot more difficult. Whereas journalism is a lot more rational, um, a lot more orderly in terms of the steps one takes um, in terms of gathering information and, you know, identifying sources and, um, you know, delving into the research and then figuring out what, what questions you want to ask as a result of that and then letting sort of the, the story emerge as a result of that whole process. That feels to me far more straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. So and that is more what I have been uh, focusing on, I would say, in recent years, whereas uh, the creative process feels a, a lot more tangled and um, uh, murky. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine with journalism, there, I don't know how to say, is, is there more of a, it's more concrete versus abstract in the sense that you kind of know where you're going and when you're done, whereas creative writing, I could see it being much more amorphous and less clear it's, or more subjective. Yeah, I well, I think it probably depends on the specific um genre you're writing in because I mean creative writing is such a, a huge umbrella you know whether you're talking about even creative nonfiction which is still creative writing you know and that's kind mm-hmm. of a blend um, I, I think well I'm sure every every writer would probably answer this question differently I, I think there are some people I, I've heard interviews uh, with other you know masterful you know novelists who, who who write the ending first somehow they know where they're going I mm. you know it seems to me to work the opposite way that you um, there's an analogy. You just you're a car with headlights in the deep fog and you can just see a little bit ahead of you and you just keep going forward. And then, you know, you see eventually where you end up. I do think that is somewhat similar with journalism in that it, you at the beginning of the process, um, you may not know exactly where the article's headed because you still have to gather all the information and, and you know, do the research. Uh, but by the time you sit down to start writing, yes, I feel like you do have a better sense. I mean, for me, at least, I do tend to outline. Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, great endorsements by Ariana Huffington and Daniel Pink, both leaders in the uh, human potential movement. And um, it reminded me of Ariana's discovery of the importance of sleep, seeing her interview way back when she was uh, founding her latest company. And she basically passed out an exhaustion in the wee hours of the morning from work and really hurt herself and um, said it changed everything about her mentality of, you know, um, 
I, uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, the, the sort of that hardworking corporate mentality of, you know, almost people in a sense, like boasting or wearing as a badge of courage, like how many hours a day they work and how little they sleep. And then causing a whole shift in the way that she does business and runs a company. Yeah, I remember reading that too. And she had, I think she, you know, broke a bone in her face or something like that from falling. Mm -hmm. I remember reading, it was a rather dramatic um, Mm -hmm. epiphany for her. (laughs) And the whole thing about sleep, as you write, it's like, it's the, it seems like it's the simplest and most impactful part of our health and conversely the most terrible part of our health if we're not if we're not getting enough sleep absolutely it is certainly one of the most overlooked parts and and you're right both um ariana huffington and daniel pink have been such leaders in in raising awareness of this and it does feel like she's somewhat you know kick-started this this whole uh, movement really, uh, you know, with her her very influential book, The Sleep Revolution. Um, but it's true for our teens as well, because it's that same attitude you described that I'll sleep when I'm dead, that, you know, getting by on less hours of sleep somehow um, is some, some sort of badge of honor. And that's a very harmful message to be, uh, it's a very harmful message for adults, but it's also a very harmful message to be passing along to our kids and our teens who in fact need more sleep than we do as adults and they are still growing and sleep is essential for that process. Mm-hmm. I, I found it interesting as you outlined the, um, the history of when school started and the reason, you know, there was a point that school, that there was a time that school started around nine o'clock, which sounds wonderful. And then due to a bunch of, economical, sociopolitical issues, that was the reason start times got earlier and earlier in several districts. Exactly. And it was very interesting to delve into it and try and figure out why why is this the case? And that was sort of what led me into this. Um, because for me, it, it was an issue that, that affected my household personally. Um, and it was 2015 when my oldest started high school. At that point, our local public high school started at 7.30 in the morning. And it had been that way for forever, for as long as anybody could remember. I mean, not truly forever, but, you know, for the last 20 plus years, there was nobody I could find who who could tell me a time when it hadn't started that early. Um, and, and what it turned out, and this is really the case in, in so many other districts in, in the country, is that the, the start times were set based on bus schedules and bus transportation considerations. So you're right, these times that used to be closer to nine o'clock gradually drifted earlier over time. And, and a lot of that really was spurred by um, budget concerns, wanting to streamline the budgets for school buses. So at, at some point districts started looking at that budget and realizing, well, we can just use one fleet of buses to do the drop-offs and pickups for those three levels, elementary, middle, and high, and we'll do a tiered system with staggered drop-offs. But at that point, which again was decades ago, the research on teen sleep was not yet widely known. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes the high schoolers were put in that earliest slot just you know, based on the assumption that, well, they're older, they should be better able to handle it. 
And now, of course, we know that if anything, it should be just the opposite, because now we do have all this research about teen sleep and their changed circadian rhythms, the fact that they, you know, are biologically um, not inclined to wake as early as they used to when they were little. And yet we have these legacy schedules that have endured. So when you were doing all this research and getting into this, this was also the same time your son was starting high school. Exactly. Yeah. And that really was meant as a baseline report because that data was from, I think it was the 2011-12 school year. So in it, so that to have the, this, this baseline data and then show what has the impact been of that statement. Um, and that really was a, a point in time where this issue really was hitting a critical mass. So in some ways, for me, it was fortuitous that that's when I started writing about it. Um, but it did end up working out in in um, in, in a way that I, I have to admit I never would have foreseen exactly how it was going to play out. But I started writing about it. You know, it hit my radar 2015. My first articles came out um, 2016. But there was one in particular which ran in the LA Times in September of 2016. It was an op-ed called "Why Schools Should Start Later in the Day," and that was in the in the print newspaper and literally was read in the newspaper by one of our California state senators, Anthony Portentino, whose district is in Los Angeles. Hmm. And it just so happened at that point, he had a freshman uh, in high school and their school was in the midst of discussions about start times. So this was an issue that really resonated with him. After he read my op-ed, he decided to look into the issue further um, with an eye towards introducing a bill on this topic. And that is exactly what ended up happening. Uh, and now I should backtrack a bit and, and just say, as I was writing about it, I was also hoping to make a change locally. So I had identified one of these information sources out there. It's a terrific um, national nonprofit called Start School Later. And they've been around since 2011. And it really is a wonderful repository of information from so many other districts around the country that have changed their start times. So I had started a local chapter here. And so when uh, Senator Portentino's office started looking into the issue, they also reached out, you know, identified Start School Later as a resource, which in turn uh, linked um, all of us who were chapter leaders in the state into this process. So I was actually involved even before the bill was introduced back in 2017. Mm. Wow. And it just kind of snowballed from there. <laughs> and the information, it, it's... It's actually phenomenal, everyone. We're going to talk about the indicators of more sleep and less sleep. And before we go into some of these, which are sh shocking, how would you find people take this information on both sides? You know, like the people are like, oh my gosh, we need to do something. And then I'm also curious, are people like, yeah, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. We've been doing it this way for a long time. Yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. And um, there are questions I, I still get, um, things like, well, if kids are so tired, why don't they just go to bed earlier? Or, um, you know, if we switch to later start times, kids are just going to stay up later and it's just going to be a wash. Um, neither of which are true. So and I, I can quickly um, refute both of those if, if you would like. Um, but basically, the first um, that, you know, teens can't just go to bed earlier. And that has to do with biology, with the fact that um, they undergo a circadian rhythm shift as they hit adolescence, which moves their sleep schedule to a later schedule. 
So Mm -hmm. they're not feeling sleepy as early as they used to, nor are they feeling alert as early in the morning as they used to. It is a huge dilemma, and we've been blaming, and we sh- still, we need to consider this, uh, a lot of those extra activities and kids having extra homework and AP classes. I mean, there is a lot more uh, pressure uh, pressure for college, pressure to be on all of these teams or, you're, or uh, and organizations, or you're going to get behind, I think, a lot more than our generation. And yet, even with all of these responsibilities and tasks, their brain, regardless, is still not going to be able to go to sleep. And so it's like this dilemma of how do we then get kids to have more sleep? Exactly. And I think you're right. It really does feel like the pressures on teens have ramped up. Um, I mean, I back when I was a teen, which was decades ago, you know, it, it, it felt like it was busy, but not to the level it is now. And, and I think you're right. The expectations have um, intensified, you know, that kids are taking all of these honors level classes and all the extracurriculars with an eye towards getting into a good college as if, you know, that one additional AP class is going to make or break their future, when in fact, that is not the case. And I think that the issue of overscheduling is real. And that is something where it can be hard because there are all these external pressures. But one recommendation is to take a look, and teens can do this or parents can do this, and just map out the amount of time that your kid is already scheduled for during their waking hours. So it's not just the hours in school, it's the anticipated amount of homework per class, which obviously can be a a heavier workload when they are taking advanced level classes. And then all the time that they already have allotted for those extracurriculars, whether it's a sports team or a club sport team or drama or speech and debate or band or what have you, maybe a job, and just map out how long do all of those take? And when you do that, see if there's even an eight to 10 hour window left to give them the opportunity to, to be able to, to get enough sleep. Because mm-hmm. in some cases, you may find that there literally isn't even an eight to 10 hour block left. And then that may be a signal that it's time to reevaluate. And this is the research that you cite and write about is profound. Um, and so where a lot of times district schools for all of these other logistic reasons, um, financial reasons, I like to just keep things the way they are. Usually people aren't fully grasping the magnitude of what sleep deprivation can do. So for example, a lot of these I have read about and known about, and some of these I did not. So for example, athletes, sleep deprived athletes have an increase in concussions. Like, they have wow. increased risk. Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, when you think about injuries and concussions, of course, being one of the most worrisome, but when you're sleep deprived, you are not performing as well. Your coordination is not as good as it should be, your response time. And so, of course, those do unfortunately heighten your risk for injuries, including concussions. Mm-hmm. One of our um, kids uh, likes to stay up very late with uh, their friends. And uh, she also likes to sleep a lot too. Like she, so she tries to make it up, but she try and it does it's not always possible. Um, and so I was using some of your research last night at dinner. And so it was really, I said, I, I have this podcast tomorrow. And she's like, oh, what is it on? She, I said, the sleep deprived teen. And she looked at me, she's like, oh, like she knew right where we were going. And I said, <laughs> I said, let me tell you about this statistic. 
sleep-deprived teens are 62% more likely to experience depression than non-sleep-deprived teens. And her eyes got big. And she's like, yeah, sleep's really important. Um, and it, it, led to a, it led to a really nice discussion. And that's why I, I hope for listeners, it's, I think this information, first of all, for us parents to get is critical. And then to have these discussions that are respectful and information giving and problem solving, because we know we, like, you can't get teens to do anything they really don't want to do without some consequence. You know, ideally, it's a joint conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not as straightforward as when they're four and you can just say, okay, it's bedtime. Uh, doesn't work that way. And teens also, you know, to your point, your, your discussion you had at the dinner table, um, you know, when you bring something up, they're not necessarily going to just hang on your every word just because you said it, you know, like they, mm -hmm. they, you do want their buy-in and you do want it to be a discussion. And that's, um, that is exactly what I recommend. And that's exactly what I found in my, in my own household. Um, you know, particularly when I was researching and writing this book and telling my, my kids about it. Um, my oldest is now 21 at the time he was still a teen. So I had two teens in the house at that point. And it wasn't as if they would just say, Oh, thanks mom. I'm so Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the sleep deprivation also has um, a differential impact or, or different communities experience increased stress and increased sleep deprivation. You speak of um, uh, lower socioeconomic status, the, LB, the LBGTQ plus communities. Tell us what that research and what you found there. Yes. Um, and in fact, there, I have a whole chapter on that in my book called Not All Teens Sleep the Same, because there are these sleep disparities and they are real and they are they are also huge topics in and of themselves. So I, mm -hmm. I, I don't want mm -hmm. to inadvertently be um, oversimplifying, you know, what what are really these these very large, important topics. But I thought it was so important just to help um make parents more more aware and schools too because these are additional complicating factors but we can start for instance with biological sex the fact that biological females um, are more prone to insomnia and take longer to fall asleep so this was interesting because one of the researchers i spoke with is an expert on uh, girls and women's sleep and again for simplicity i'm going to say girls sleep but it's really it has to do with biology so this is biological females because this um difference where up until puberty they don't see really any differences and then they do see this start to emerge at puberty so there's you know the, the simple fact that biological females sleep worse they also have the impact of the menstrual cycle which, you know, hormones are, are a powerful thing. And when you look at the fact that girls and, and women often get PMS or have uh, painful periods, well, those are things that impact sleep. And just to put this in perspective, in the U.S., about half of U.S. girls have gotten their periods by age 12. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a regular occurrence. And for you know, so many girls, there are complicating factors as a result of this that impact their sleep. And so many, let me just say one, add one thing, and many uh, U.S. girls by age 10. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yes. And that, you know, I know that's another whole discussion of why right. is it that, that the right. age is, is slowly getting younger. But the reality is, you know, that you do sometimes have uh, physiological 
um, factors based on that that impact your sleep. And so that's happening on obviously a regular basis. And that's above and beyond all the other stressors that they already have going on. And it's the same for an, a number of other uh, groups. And I should mention that, of course, our teens can, can be in more than one of these categories. Um, so the second one is the fact that sexual and gender minority teens and adults sleep worse than their counterparts. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of this is, is due to discrimination. Mm-hmm. The impacts of discrimination um, can affect one's ability to fall asleep. And then, unfortunately, if you don't get a good night's sleep, you are less emotionally resilient the next day to deal with things like discrimination. And, and when we say discrimination, that's everything from microaggressions on up. Um, and it's the same situation when you look at race and ethnicity, that teens of color are disproportionately likely to sleep more poorly. Um, and, you know, it does take a cumulative toll. So this is above and beyond mm-hmm. all, everything else that they have going on. And it's, it's really insidious because, it, you know, it, it does have this cumulative impact. And then the last piece is the impact of neighborhoods and poverty and the fact that if you live somewhere where it's crowded or it's noisy or you don't feel safe, that's going to affect your ability to get a good night's sleep. And again, mm-hmm. you can be a teen for, for whom more than one of these is a reality. And so all of these represent additional potential complications um, and th- that are impacting their mm. ability to get enough sleep. It's complicated and it's it's so important. Um, you know, something you just said in a, a, a few other recent podcasts has made me really appreciate city planners and community planners. And you realize how much of physical and mental health and wellness um, come out of where you live, how how where you live works or doesn't work. Um, like yes. you said, noise and um, how many people um, and housing is really in close quarters. Of course, there's there's a reason for all of this, um, but it's complicated. And I, I I like to simplify things when they can be simple. Um, and so I'm going to try here sleeping. When we think of mental health and we think of physical health and we think of risk of mental and physical health, we should be focusing on sleep. Yes, absolutely. I mean, sleep is, you can live um, without food longer than you can live without sleep. It Mm. it really is one of those absolutely essential elements of life. And yet too often it does get sort of... um, pushed aside or people think, oh, well, I can get by on less sleep. You know, one of the sleep researchers I spoke with, he has this great analogy. He's like, well, you wouldn't starve yourself during the week and then say, oh, well, I'm going to be able to, to make it all up on the weekends, you know, which is sort of the, the, um, the way some people often approach sleep. We have a mental health crisis. Um, we know it's been published. We have a mental health crisis yes. for our teens. I mean, and beyond, but particularly our uh, children and teens. And um, we just had a recent uh, podcast discussion on suicide. And something you write is so critical. So I want to let everyone know this and for us to discuss this, that there was a study of close to 70,000 high school students that found that teens who slept less than six hours were more than three times as likely, more than three times as likely to say they'd considered suicide 
made a plan to attempt suicide or actually attempted it compared to those who had gotten at least eight hours of sleep. That is significant. Yeah. And as a parent, it, you know, you, you come across statistics like that and it just, it's terrifying mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because, because of the magnitude of the mental health issues that, that our teens are facing right now, as you mentioned. Um, and the fact that when they're sleep deprived, um, they, well, all of us, but especially teens are more prone to impulsive behaviors, which unfortunately has implications for Mm -hmm. things like suicide because teens already are more prone to impulsive behaviors because of the stage of brain development they're in. So when they're sleep deprived, it makes it that much more, um, more of an issue. You've been an advocate for, um, later school start times and, um, advancing the knowledge and uh, of the science of sleep to the masses as a writer, as a journalist, as an advocate, what have you found? It's, so we're, we're talking about all these different angles, right? We're talking about there is um, disparity. Um, there's social justice issues and disparity issues, uh, gender issues. There's mental health. There's physical health. There's athletic issues. There's driving, um, increased driving, ac- ac- traffic accidents. Have you found any levers help people understand this more than other levers when you're trying to move the, like move the mountain? That's a great question. Yeah. Because I think, um, when you talk about shifting school start times, which, um, is the single biggest policy change that that can be made to, to help teens get more sleep. Oftentimes, the discussion quickly pivots to the logistics of it, of, oh, well, that's not going to be convenient. And what about, you know, sports and what about transportation? So I think what's what really helps um, is to ground it in an understanding of why this is being done. The fact that teen sleep deprivation is a public health issue for mm-hmm. all the reasons that you just mentioned. And that is why all of the major medical groups, uh, starting with the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommend these, these later school start times of 8.30 or later for middle and high schoolers. And I think trying to um, help people understand the public health implications and that that is what this is based on. Um, because when you, when you think about other public health issues like asbestos or lead paint, you know, those are issues where people tend to recognize the urgency more readily and don't say, oh, well, let's just leave it to each community to decide. And that still took a while. And that still took a while for even that to be a thing. Absolutely. But, but that this is a public health issue in Mm -hmm. in the same way that some of these other public health issues, you know, have such widespread ramifications and really trying to help people understand that so that the discussion doesn't get um, sort of, you know, off on the, on this sidetrack of, well, it, it's not going to be convenient because it, there are going to be, you know, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, there are going to be some inconveniences when you talk about making a change because that's inherent with making a change. The other piece though, too, just to keep in mind is right. that most of the time, you know, probably all the time, the, the school schedules that, that are in place now are not convenient for families. They were never designed with working families in mind. You know, working families do not get off a week at Thanksgiving or a couple of weeks at, you know, Christmas or entire summers or have off these random days, you know, that happen to coincide with teacher prep days. 
Um, the you know the time school gets out in the afternoon is not five o'clock, you know, or six o'clock the way you know if you work a full time job. So they're not convenient to begin with. But the fact is that as parents, we have sort of carefully crafted our lives around these schedules. And so anytime you talk about making a change, you have to change all those other uh, wraparound uh, accommodations we, you know, we as parents have made to make it work. And so I, I think that's where sometimes a lot of the pushback comes from also. Mm-hmm. Another, like two, uh, two other important, there's several important points you make, but two that are jumping out at me are one that when we think about increasing resilience and mental health, that you talk about getting enough sleep actually serves as an emotional buffer. So let's talk about that. And also followed by changing these start times um, actually becomes an equity issue that can help help with the, um, the disparate community impact of less sleep. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you're right. Sleep really can be thought of as kind of helping boost that emotional buffer because we are more emotionally resilient when we've gotten a good night's sleep. And that's that's true for adults, too. I mean, you, you just sort of know it, that things just seem easier. When you wake up and you've had a great night's sleep, you feel better. You start the day in a better mood. You know, I know for me, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I'm definitely, you know, crabbier than I would be otherwise. I'm with you. Um, that's the same for our teens. But they are still in the midst of so m- many changes. You know, they're, they're going through such massive physical developmental changes, uh, brain changes, you sort of think of it as a, you know, a caterpillar, you know, uh, morphing into a butterfly, that's what they're doing. And they're living that out in public every day, having to deal with all the stressors we were talking about, about school and getting into a good college and all that. And so being able to start with a a solid base of emotional resiliency is so important, because if you don't have that, it makes everything much harder. There, there's not one thing that we do better as a result of being sleep deprived. Not one thing. And the other thing that you mentioned, which relates, and I think people like this is so important for people to know that the research shows that when kids get enough sleep, they're less susceptible to peer pressure. Yes. Yeah, that was really interesting because I did talk to one researcher who does look at uh, juvenile delinquency And essentially, when you get enough sleep, you are less um, susceptible to peer pressure. And that in turn does have implications for such a wide range of risky behaviors. I mean, he was studying, um, I think it was was everything from uh, drinking alcohol to attacking someone with a weapon. I mean, there's a huge range, of course, of, of these kind of risky behaviors. But in all cases, that barrier of, um, you know, having that self-control is lowered when our teens haven't gotten enough sleep. And it does make them more susceptible to the influence of their peers as part of that. Hmm. That's profound. So important. There's so many things linked to sleep. And um, and let's talk about then again, narrowing the education equity. Talk about how we just really need to also really keep our eye on the ball here when it comes to this is something that can hugely positively impact all of the disparities that continue, unfortunately, in our society. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, in Seattle, which is one of the largest uh, jurisdictions to date to change their start times prior to our state law in California going into effect, 
um, they actually studied the impact of these later start times at two high schools. And what they found as a way of sort of studying before the change and after how much more sleep teens were getting. But what they found was at the school, which where most students came from lower income households, attendance went up and tardies went down far more so than at the other school. And the researcher I spoke with characterized it as a leveling effect. So it mm. is so important when you talk about sleep really as a, as a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. I think that really underscores that. So there are several. So those looking to advocate, uh, those who listening who are have been in the process and those who now just are getting motivated learning about this um, and will read your book to get some guidance and some to, to, to load up on these facts. There are several levers to pull like and and as I found in my life um, and my various um, consultation and work and with schools and other, it's really trying to find a way to get your point across in a way that it will be received and understood by the listener. And, and different messages work with different people depending on the community and the need and the experience of the individual and the group at large. Exactly. That is such a good point. Um, because there are schools where you know, there are kids who are coming from these lower income households and they already have these stressors on their sleep. Um, there may be other, and as a result, you know, things like attendance are, are impacted. There may be other schools where they say, well, you know, the, the, the fact that sleep increases graduation rates, that's not an issue here. We're a high performing school. Well, in those cases, probably the mental health message is going to resonate more. Because those kids are doing it all, but, you know, it does sometimes come at a price. Mm -hmm. So I think it does depend on, on who your audience is, to your point, and also what, mm -hmm. what they already sort of know about sleep. Because um, for some people, even just knowing that there is this, this shift in teen sleep schedules and that the teens aren't just lazy for not getting up in the morning, like you have to sort of start with that and, and um, build fr from some of these these. Mm -hmm. um, basic tenets of the realities of teen sleep. So when we think of the audience being our children, our teenagers, um, what would you say to our listeners that you have found both personally, professionally, from a research perspective, all combined, that you would recommend how to talk to your teen who you know is not getting enough sleep? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, um, well, as, as we had, would mentioned earlier, um, having it be an ongoing conversation is mm -hmm. so key because it isn't a case where you can just sort of, you know, issue an edict and expect that <laughs> your teens mm -hmm. can happily comply. Um, doesn't work that way with teens. Nope. So ha having it be an ongoing conversation is certainly helpful. Um, I think, and, and again, this, it depends on the specific situation. So if it is a situation where the teen may be overscheduled, that's something where hopefully the parent can help maybe look at everything they have on their plate and, and figure out, are there pieces that can be removed from mm -hmm. that, you know, from everything that they're, that they're doing? Because if they have too much going on and they feel the pressure that they need to mm -hmm. be doing all this or else, you know, they won't succeed. I think that's... We're, we're sort of fighting against a message that um, we see broadly in society. Some schools, you know, this is what they're seeing from their peers and the broad message. But it's also a message that, you know, we can impact starting in our homes. Mm -hmm. So 
that's a, a place where parents can help make a difference. Um, I think, you know, sort of the message that nobody does anything better than when they're sleep deprived certainly can help. Um, but it's also a matter of timing of when you discuss this with them. So if they're yes. staying up late and it's the night before a big test, well, that's probably not going to be a great <laughs> nope. <time>. No, <laughs> Um, but that also then can be a marker for, for, for us as parents to say, you know, maybe that's something for next time we can work on helping them plan ahead for assignments. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't all get left to last minute trying to figure out, is it that, was it a matter of planning was it a matter of them just being overscheduled. And so that's why they couldn't get to it. And maybe we need to look at that piece. Yes. So sort of trying to analyze what are the pieces that, that are part of it. Um, and, you know, because I think often, you know, teens will know when they're tired or exhausted, but they may feel that they don't have any way to fix it. And so that's right. where I think right. we can help them. Totally agree. And um, to add what I've learned from a parent, as a parent and um, from my clinical work is, you know, adolescents, we want to help them bridge to young adulthood. Whereas adolescents, there's a lot of natural pushing against the rules and pushing against authority and you're not the boss of me, so to speak. And what we're trying to do is help them be like, no, no, you are in charge of you. And we want to empower you to make good decisions for your life. And so the conversation can either be one of, hey, you need to do this. You're not getting enough sleep, which as you say, does not work generally. Or the <laughs> other is trying to give this information and be this guide to them about like problem solving with them. Hey, this is what I've learned. This is what I've learned, the impact. And, and this is what I did the other last night at dinner with your, the information that you have given me. Um, here's what I've learned. And, um, and then it, it, it created a whole dialogue about how she thinks about sleep and what hours and numbers she thinks about. And it was a discussion, which now she being um, 18, I was like, okay, so you know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you? And, you know, what are your goals? And how do you think about the weekdays versus the weekends? And so like, we can slowly help them live their life and not have to push back against us and our rules. That's to me, the ultimate goal. Yes, absolutely. And then especially when you talk about, you know, an 18 year old, you know, they're on the cusp of leaving home, you know, at some point, mm -hmm. they will, you know, launch out into the world. And then we're not there to remind them it's bedtime right. or to talk right. about all this stuff. So ultimately, yes, it has to be self driven. That's the ideal, everyone. That's the ideal. Okay, Lisa, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. Oh, it's such a good question, and it's so hard to come up with a succinct answer for that. Um, what I would say is certainly becoming a parenting author and journalist helped me um, to sort of really look at this stuff in a more analytical way. Um, and at first, the articles I was writing were when my kids were little, you know, things like how to know when it's time to transition from a crib to a toddler bed. Mm -hmm. And those are more straightforward. And then I think as, as your kids get older, the issues get a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. 
So I would say it really has been during these last several years, um, because so many of the topics I write about do stem from issues that are personally, you know, impacting me as a parent, and then I go off and start researching it and, and writing about it. So I would say that whole process has made me um, more aware, I would say, as a parent, because I, I'm more intentional, certainly, about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. seeking out the research and not only trying to, you know, crystallize it, write about it, but then figure out how to apply it in my own house. So there isn't like one specific moment I can point to, but I would say it has been a process because all the stuff I've written about most recently, sleep absolutely mm-hmm. has been immersive for, you know, last seven years. But I've also written a lot about um, sports safety issues. I've um written about um, other issues that that sort of touch on teen mental health. And um, just really, I think that that whole process has made me mm-hmm. more intentional yeah. as a parent. I love that process. Um, I need to know more about this, or I want to know more about this. So I'm going to research it. So I'm going to learn from it. And then I'm going to write something to help everyone else in my situation um, have this knowledge and be able to do something about it as well. Like, that's a that's a win-win. It is. It, it, you make it sound like it's so quick and easy. And it's, yeah. I mean, it has been a process. <laughs> Piece of cake. Piece of cake. I also want to highlight, you mentioned twice, intentionality, being intentional. And that is just so important as we grow and as we try to be the best people we can be and the best parents we can be, really about being intentional instead of reactive, right? Like really, because all these things that come at us with our kids, particularly as our kids get older, they get more and more complicated. And we rarely have the right response or answer in the moment. We rarely do. It's about how to take the time and get information and manage our anxiety and then be intentional about how we step into something with our kids. Oh my goodness. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it's so true because all these, you know, the, the weighted questions or conversations, like you can think about them ahead of time, but then all of a sudden you get asked a question and boom, you don't get to say, well, hold that thought. Let me go and <laughs> and yes. do some research here. So yeah. it, it is um, sometimes just, you know, you're, you're, you're put on the spot and these are such big issues. Um, and so being as intentional as we can and just knowing that, um, you know, it, you just keep, keep at it. You, you, you keep yep. doing your best. Um, and then, and I will tie it back to sleep because when we have enough sleep, we are more able to do that. We are less reactive. Yes. We do have our yes. own emotional reserves that have been replenished, which, you know, if I, what I guess probably a, a terrific um, ending message I would say is when parents are well-rested and their teens are well-rested, everything seems to go a whole lot more smoothly. Oh, I'm so glad you just mentioned that. That is, of course, like it's so, that's the cornerstone, right? Like that is, it's, should be so obvious, but it's, it's not. And so important, everyone. Do you hear that? Just when, even if our kids aren't getting enough sleep, if we're getting enough sleep, it's going to go better. And when you're both, as you say, Lisa, like, oh my God, it goes way better. The communication, the frustration tolerance, the emotional regulation, it all goes in a much better direction. Absolutely. Oh, thank you for mentioning that. Last question before we end. Do you have another topic that you're working on that you can foreshadow for us or is it uh, to be determined? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm smiling as, as you say that because I have to admit, I'm still so immersed in sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right now, California is the only state in the entire country that has a state law um, that governs how early schools are allowed to start. So, mm. I, you know, in my opinion, every other state should have a similar law. And mm-hmm. so I think there's still such tremendous opportunity out there yes. to help raise awareness of this. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a couple of states that have bills right now in the works, uh, including New York and New Jersey. So um, I feel like there's still a whole lot more to be done still on um, raising mm-hmm. awareness of teen mm-hmm. sleep. So I'm, I'm still I, I'm still very much um, You're in in, in, uh, immersed, I would say. <laughs> well, thank you, because um, a lot of uh, minds, bodies and souls can be positively impacted by this this work. So thank you for continuing to do so. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much. I just love talking to you about this. It's a a passion of mine. (laughs) It clearly is. Um, And uh, thank you for enlightening me. I so enjoyed your book, everyone. The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive. Where should everyone find this work as well as all of your previous work? Um, so the book is available pretty much wherever books are sold. You can find it at the, at the you know, mass um, sites like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, also my website, which is lisalewis.com. And I've got all the uh, information about the, the book. And then if you want to order a signed copy and then all my various articles on teen sleep and all the other things I've written about and more info about me. And I do use my middle initial just because it's such a common name. So it's lisalewis.com. Three L's, everyone. Lisa L. Lewis. Lisa, thank you for the time and your wisdom and uh, for your continued advocacy. Thank you. All right, everyone. Go get some sleep. Go get some sleep. No, it's the number one thing to focus on in terms of mental, physical, and emotional health. And do your best to educate your kids about the importance of health so they can get on board because they want to, not because they're being forced to. When they want to and buy in, we have much better results than the opposite. Thank you for listening. Please share this with everyone because everyone needs more sleep. Thank you for being a part of our community, your five-star reviews. They really do matter to us. When it comes to sleep and everything else, try to be that person you want your child to become. They're always watching. They're always listening. And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.